This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Every week we take a look at some of the most important and intriguing stories from the issue with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. This week, can COP26 deliver on its grand promises? Plus, is it moral to bribe your child to go to church? And finally, what are the ups and downs of book clubs? First up, in our cover story this week, Fraser Nelson assesses the state of the upcoming COP26 summit in Glasgow and questions their very effectiveness in dealing with climate change in a world of global players with very different priorities. Fraser joins me now, along with reporter Jess Shankleman, who's covering COP for Bloomberg. Jess, let's start with the basics. What is COP26, which starts this weekend, actually hoping to achieve? That's kind of the million dollar question. And I've been thinking about this a bit before we started talking, because I think one of the problems with defining success at this COP is it's not actually binary. Like if you look back to Paris or Copenhagen, they were trying to achieve a global deal on cutting emissions. This time round, it's quite a lot more nuanced. And the negotiations themselves are just around finishing the Paris rule book. So whether they can create a global carbon market. So (laughs) what you've kind of got is a lot of other add-ons. So the Paris Agreement said that by 2020, we're saying 2021 because obviously we lost a year in the pandemic, countries had to come back with bigger pledges to try and close the emissions gap so that they could try and get on course for limiting global warming to that goal of 1.5 to well below 2 degrees. We will already know when we get to COP that we haven't achieved that and no one ever really thought that we would achieve that at this summit. So one of the things they'll be trying to achieve is some kind of a political agreement on when they're going to come back and make more pledges. The other big thing is on finance. Rich countries said that they would give $100 billion a year to help poor countries tackle climate change. And again, going into Glasgow, we already know that they haven't achieved that by 2020. Fraser, you write about COP in your cover piece this week. What do you think Boris, who's, who's going to be hosting it, is hoping to achieve from it? Well, there was a time where he was wanting to go for a kind of global net zero. You know, he himself has committed Britain to um, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. He would have liked uh, everybody to agree to 1.5 degrees warming, um, which would have been consistent with net zero globally by 2050. Now, that was probably a bit too much, because for that to happen, you need China. China is now moving on its own timetable and in its own way. It announced to everybody's surprise last month, but actually it, it intends to keep those coal fires burning. Most of um, Chinese power is generated by, by burning coal, easily the dirtiest form of fuel. They're going to keep their emissions rising until the end of this decade and then go for 2060. They're going to go for net zero. So that's a different timetable. And you've, got, you've now got Russia, China, Saudi Arabia talking about 2060, while Britain, Japan, Europe, America is talking about 2050. It is sort of progress, in, but not. it's not really to do with the summits. My problem with these summits is that there's something kind of fake about it. The idea that everybody goes around a table and you sit there in the room where it happens and then they come out agreeing to something. In reality, 
all of these leaders, certainly in the democracies, they can only do what their parliaments allow them to do or what their voters will let them get away with. Even Joe Biden, who's come here talking about cutting American emissions 50% from 2005 levels, that's twice what Obama had committed to. Biden can't even get that past his own Congress right now. I think the Queen put it very well when she was caught off camera on mic in the Welsh Assembly opening, where she was saying two things. First of all, She's got no idea who's coming. Um, by the way, we're still not entirely sure who or what we're going to see from China. And secondly, they talk, but they don't do. That is these COP summits all over. They will come together promising to get serious on it, to limit it well below this and that. But even the Paris Agreement was toothless and that it wasn't binding. So there's very little hard promises come away from this. Uh, by the way, I'm a climate optimist. I mean, I think the new technology is advancing at an incredible pace. And I think over the next 10 years, we're going to be pleasantly surprised by just how much cheaper renewable energy comes. I think we'll be having very different debates. But I'm not optimistic about COP summits. I think these summits, not just COP, but the G20 summits, NATO summits, they're all basically acts of political theatre. This one's in Glasgow, but you'd best think of it as being the Edinburgh Festival of Environmentalism. Lots of fun, lots of debates, lots of protest, lots of street action but not really much of any concrete substance. Two really interesting points there. I mean, I, I thought it was fascinating that, you know, you were saying that push for 1.5 only being the temperature target was Boris Johnson's idea. That doesn't surprise me at all, because like I was saying, you know, this COP itself doesn't really have that much to say in terms of giving success. So I can completely see Boris Johnson saying, right, let's try and get the world to agree to having 1.5 C as the temperature goal. But that was never going to happen because at Paris, getting 1.5 as into the range, it was supposed to be will limit temperature to well below two degrees. And then the vulnerable nations like the Maldives, they really pushed for 1.5 to be in there. And now you've got G20 countries, emerging economies like Saudi and Russia, saying if you want to have 1.5 as the only goal, you are moving the goalposts. We agreed in Paris on a temperature range. And so it was never going to happen. And I, and I think, like you said, Alok Sharma knew that was never going to happen either. And then you also raise a really good question about, you know, is this really the end of multilateralism for climate change? Because there's not really a huge amount left to negotiate now. The Paris rule book is virtually finished. Fraser, one of the points you make is that a few countries led by Britain have brought in legally binding pledges to hit net zero by 2050. Do you think it's a mistake that we've sort of entangled ourselves in that sort of promise? My problem is I think it's deceptive. Uh, there are only a small number of countries, perhaps a dozen, who have done a legally binding 2050 agreement. Now, there's something strange about politicians passing a law forcing them to do something. But I've never worked out why a politician would have to do that. If you want to say you're, you're serious about hitting net zero by 2050, you need to publish how you're going to do it and how much it's going to cost. And that's what this government hasn't done. I just don't think it's serious. I think it's wasting everybody's time in saying that they're going to go from 2050 net zero. Uh, the Treasury, for example, thinks it would cost £60 billion a year. Now, they may well be right, but we've just had a, a budget um, this week where Rishi Sunak has, for example, said he doesn't have enough money to give um, pupils the extra tuition they'd need to compensate for, for lockdown. Now, to me, that's really kind of a surprising and, and dismaying 
decision of his to think of how are we supposed to say we care about the future if we're going to deprive kids of their education and then when we've actually got the money not spend it on extending the school day and giving them the help and support they need Rishi Sunak will say well money's very tight very tough choices they're right there in 60 billion pounds a year is more than the whole school's budget so are we really going to spend that much money on unilaterally going for net zero. Can Boris Johnson get political approval for this? Can anybody win an election by saying this is what we intend to do? So I think there is a little bit of denying the reality here. They talk about, I mean, Boris Johnson in his prelude to last week's documents said that um, it's it's untrue to say that going green, you need to sacrifice the things that you love. Uh, We can get to net zero without a hair shirt in sight. I think that's dishonest in the extreme. I think net zero can only happen by significantly increasing bills on transport, on food, and a whole bunch of other things. The price of an avocado, for example, should really go up a lot to reflect the carbon coming in that avocado if you're going to get to net 50 on our current understanding of available tech. And to suggest you don't have to do that, I think, is to be is to be dishonest. And unless you're being honest, you don't really have a plan. Though to put that figure in context, that is about one percent of GDP in 2050. You're right, but I don't know how what percent of GDP it would have cost to give the kids the tuition they need post lockdown. And if we can't have money for that, and also let's look at the foreign aid budget. That's about. £15 million. Pounds. The, the government was torn in two, w- whether to cut that from 17 to 15. There were massive rebellions over just £2 billion. Pounds. So I think that to say it's, you're right, it is, point, it is 1% of GDP, but that figure is easily enough to split governments and to lose elections. Because people, re- re- I mean, w- when it comes to, to cutting these things in the budget, e- every penny is starting to count, as, as we've seen f- from the budget today. Yeah, and I think the really interesting thing for me about the Treasury and how they're dealing with it is, you know, the the question is, as people switch to different fuels, for example, as they move to electric cars, the Treasury is going to lose money in fuel duty. Um, the Chancellor's frozen fuel duty every year for 12 years now, as he's just announced in this, this budget. So how the Treasury hasn't actually said how they're going to raise taxes. They don't want to borrow to pay for the transition. So they said they're going to raise taxes, which probably means road pricing, but they haven't actually set that plan out. So I think the real question, as Fraser says, is how are they going to fund this? And until we have an answer, we don't have a plan. I feel very strongly about this. We cannot honestly claim to have a plan to hit next year by 2050 unless we've said how much it's going to cost and how it's going to be paid for. So that's why, legally binding or not, Boris Johnson's plan is pie in the sky. Fraser, the point that you make is that Boris seems to be waiting for this new technology to materialise even if it doesn't exist right now. Do you you think that's the right approach? I think it's plausible. I am on the optimistic side of this. And in my cover story, I talk about this fascinating working paper from Oxford University, which came out in May, that suggests that that we all underestimate just how fast technology comes along and that net zero is going to be hit, it thinks, in 25 years, and it's going to save us billions of pounds, not cost us a penny. Now, that sounds outlandish. To me, it sounds quite unlikely, but I would not say that it's impossible. Who would have thought that Tesla would be worth more than a trillion dollars? It broke that market value this week after Hertz um, declared that it wants to buy lots of Teslas because people want to rent electric cars. We're talking consumer demand and technology. Now, Elon Musk was not created at a COP26 summit. He came along, invented something, the world wanted it. And I, I've got a lot of faith 
in consumer choice, in innovation and capitalism as being the, the drivers of a cleaner planet. I think that we are, Britain's carbon emissions are now down to Victorian levels. That's an incredible achievement. And I think this happens not because governments are forcing each other to do it and bullying each other at COP summits. This is happening mainly because of millions of consumers want it. I mean, the Queen, I've mentioned her once, but I'll mention her once again. She put it very well in her 2010 address to the United Nations. She was saying that in her um, decades of rule, she'd noticed that the biggest changes happened not because there was a summit, not because there was a political diktat, but because millions of people wanted that change to happen. Now, right now, I think millions of people want a cleaner, greener planet. They're willing to pay for it. They're willing to pay more. They're willing to change their lifestyle, change their shopping. And I think when you combine that with technology, we will get there. Maybe not um, net zero. I'm not even sure you need to get to net zero by 2050. I don't go along with a lot of the more apocalyptic claims made here. But I do think we're on a fast trajectory to a better place. I just don't think we're going to get there via COP summits. And Jess, just to finish on, I mean, do you think that a COP summit is really the best way to deal with the issue of climate change? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question because on one hand, as you say, this kind of annual summit, it's like a jamboree and we're going to have 25,000 people descending on Glasgow and protesters. And it's it does kind of crank the pressure up on countries to step up their climate goals. And the way the Paris Agreement is designed is that every five years they have to crank up and tighten their carbon goals. And we have seen that and we have seen more money coming forward. But at the same time, people are going to increasingly question whether it's right to have all these people flying into one city. They, ca they can't even all stay there. There's people staying in Edinburgh. There's people spending thousands of pounds on hotel rooms to spend two weeks there. And the actual outcome might be quite minimal. Thank you, Fraser and Jess. Next up, Theo Hobson writes in The Spectator this week that not only is he paying his daughter to go to church, he's paying her to get confirmed. But how holy is this? To discuss, I'm joined by a holy trinity of priests, Steve Morris, Daniel French and Nicholas Cranfield, as well as Theo Hobson. Theo, in this week's issue of The Spectator, you write about bribing your daughter to go to church and to get confirmed. How did this idea come about? Well, it actually came from the vicar. As I say in the article, it was him who mentioned that someone, some other parishioner, had uh, paid for their child to go to church or teenager to get confirmed I think and so I wasn't really intending to do that I was just intending to um, use the normal sort of parental pressures of threats and so forth but I thought well why not you know it's not a massive amount of money or anything and and it's something that um, one pays for other activities so why not this? Steve, I, I think I'm right in saying that this practice isn't new to you either and that you also paid your daughter to attend church. What what was your thinking? Well, I, I did it on a, a few occasions, actually. I mean, I, we were once, she was going to be singing in church and she had a terrible kind of wobble. You know, she was got very terrified. And it was amazing how a £10 note actually persuaded her up to the microphone. So, you know, I, I think, Theo, hats off to you. I mean, you know, if you can get, get them in church in any way, you know, I'm quite happy with that. Nicholas, what do you make of this pay-to-pray scheme? Well, I now have a very different view of how I'm going to look at my congregation on Sunday morning. <laughs> I'm slightly suspicious that they only turn up because somebody's paid them, and I'm not sure that really is how it works. I'm of a mind also that I think anything that gets people across the threshold has to be important, and especially with young people, because then they will find out for themselves, and they might choose later that it's not really for them, but they would actually find out, if they stand outside the whole time and refuse to come in, 
then the bias and the prejudice is going to mount up. One sense, I think we already pay our children quite enough in terms of pocket money, but that's often to persuade them or in exchange of their services for doing things that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise choose to do. So I can see that it might, might work. I think the best example, of course, is they will actually find younger people there as well, and that may come to some of them as a bit of a surprise. Daniel, one of the points that Theo makes is that religion is incomprehensible unless you have been exposed to it, so therefore paying someone to be exposed to it is a good thing. Would you agree with that? Well, there's, there's good tradition in it, because if you think of several generations ago, and it would be mostly boys would have been in a church choir and they'd have got a couple of shillings, wouldn't they, for doing that? It would have got them, maybe it would have got them in a working class family out of mum and dad's hair for the morning and they were learning a skill and he hearing something moral and being exposed, as you say, to the tradition. I have to put my hand up and say, I paid my daughter, who's 14, five pounds to go to church a couple of weeks ago because we were spinning lots of plates. My wife's training to be a priest. She was going to one church, I was going to another. And um, I said, would a fiver do it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> Three Hail Marys, but there you go. Cheaper than babysitting costs. And do you have to keep doing it? Is it every time she goes to church, you have to pay her? Or is it a one-off? Well, I think this has been a one-off so far. However, I had heard on this. It's funny that this has come up because I'd heard this on the grapevine uh, a couple of weeks ago about a church exploring the idea of instead of paying a youth worker, I mean, I suppose if you do the number crunching, what is it, say 30K, if you split that up to the minimum wage for an hour for a teenager, uh, you could have up to about 80 children in church. And nobody to sort them out. You need the youth worker there to work with them. That's the cost. It can't all be the vicar. <laughs> yeah. Nicholas, is it, is it sinful to profess faith without meaning it purely for monetary reasons? I don't, I don't imagine we're trying to lure children into professing a faith if they are agnostic. I think we're just giving them the opportunity of that experience in the same way that not everybody who boards a train becomes a train driver. I would be very worried if there was a suggestion that they, as younger people are being prevailed upon to answer the right questions and say, oh, yes, actually, Dad, I do now believe, simply because of the exchange of, of some filthy lucre. But I don't think that's the intention. I think it's just simply to try to bring people into church, which seems to me to be both laudable and, and probably practicable in many areas. Theo, in your case, you're, you're paying your daughter not only to go to church, but also because you want her to go through with her confirmation. Why do you feel so strongly about that? It's just one of those things where you want to pass on your tradition and you feel that this is something that we think our children should be exposed to and that we think it's a good, a good form of culture going to church. And therefore, there's got to be some way of encouraging them to do it. And if you're just pressuring too much, it's obviously a bit counterproductive. Now, ideally, we would have found a church that we all love going to and is a community we all belong to. But in real life, it is quite hard to find that that's something that appeals to everyone. And for young people, it's probably not going to seem the most exciting form of culture. It's going to look a, a bit stilted and slow and dull going to church until you get used to it. It might take you decades to get the real affection for that. And, and early on in life, it's going to be some form of um, obligation, probably, that keeps you going. Now, Now, we could also talk about the ways in which church should be more attractive to young people. And I think that's something that has to go, go on alongside church services. I think church services themselves 
it's quite hard to see how they appeal to someone under 45 or something, unless you belong to a very sort of lively type of church, which I don't. So, so, so that's really my thinking on that. Well, I mean, that actually leads me on to the question I was going to ask, which was to the three clergymen here. What, what are you doing to encourage younger people to participate in your community? Steve, what are you, what are you doing? Well, you know, it is re- it's really tricky because what happens is a lot of the younger people go off to churches that are specifically designed for, for younger people. And I think, I think that's fine. I think that what, what we always try to do is to involve people in, in our community. You know, we really liked older people and younger people interacting. So we'd have stuff happening that wasn't on Sunday, things like Memory Cafe where elders could come, and the youngsters just loved coming along and serving. So I suppose we started somewhere that was outside of the service, and we just keep working and hoping that there are, there are things we can do to get them to the service. I didn't mind too much. I was just happy that they were part of our church. And, and I must say, as well, Theo, that the same thing happened to me. I was an atheist and, until very late, and when my children were born, I really wanted them to go to church, and I've often wondered, why on earth was that? And I think it's because, even then, I knew there was something good about it. I knew there was something good about it. And I, I mean, I'm clear about what that good is now. I know the, the words to use. And I, I, find it, I find it very heartwarming, your story. And, and really, it, it chimes along with mine as well. Nicholas, how about yourself? Mine's a fairly traditional church, but we've always been very open and very encouraging of having young servers. I mean, the youngest at the moment is just turning four, young members of the choir, when we can get them a youth group. And again, as you say, doing things outside Sunday times. So, for instance, a couple of years ago, we had a challenge and we gave a time and talent. We gave, amongst others, the youth group, all given £10 each to go off and make some money from it. And that led to a young girl actually setting up effectively a farmer's shop. She started selling fruit and veg off the back garden. She started selling neighbours' fallen apples. She was outside the school three nights a week and she raised an absolute fortune for the charity at the age of 12, just showing initiative. And in one sense, that was nothing to do with church, although uh, the proceeds came to a parish charity we were supporting. But she saw herself very much as involved in that community. So I'm sure that's part of the answer. We're lucky enough, uh, Blackheath, I mean, we have servers and a choir, as I say, but at the same time, I think church schools have a lot to answer for. And I work in the Diocese of Southwark, and there are over 160, if I remember rightly, primary schools across the borough, and that, of course, uh, across the diocese. And of course, that makes an enormous difference, whether it means that children regularly get to come into a local church, as they do in my case, whether it's because the local clergy will go into the school. I think that's formative. I, I think drama, something like that, is, is great for kids. Like, the, the, what I'm hoping is that it'll just stay on in this. Uh, going to this parish a bit, if there's something like a nativity place you can get involved with, if there's something other than just the normal service, it might be the choir if she gets into that, or it might be doing something like drama, but something, uh, a focus as well as the normal worship, just to keep her going, I think. And Theo and Steve, do you feel like your daughters have become more interested in the Christian faith since you've been paying them to go to church? Well, I think there is an interest there. You know, I think I think the problem is that uh, teenagers are a bit cagey about suddenly admitting they're really interested in religion or something. There's, there's just It's part of our culture that you grow up a bit by saying, of course, I'm not into that, especially if your parents are into it, because it's about the past, it's about authority slightly. So, of course, you're not going to, uh, unless you're a certain sort of teenager in a certain sort of church. I think the the only sort of young people who are really into church, it would be quite a sort of sectarian sort of church where you're taught to reject the rest of culture and just, you know, have all of your friends in the church. And that's not the model of most 
liberalish people. So I think in real life, you're going to have it as part of your identity if you grow up Christian. You're going to be sort of bilingual. You're going to dip into a bit of church, but you're also going to keep open-minded. And I, th I think in terms of confirmation, in a way, it's quite important not to see it as a sort of definite fixed identity that you're achieving when you get confirmed. I think it should be seen as I'm going to keep thinking about it, but this is one aspect of my uh, life. This is one influence on me that I'm affirming or taking seriously. But we, we shouldn't expect them to, you know, stand up and say, I love Jesus and it's all, it's all about religion from now on. We should have a sort of realistic idea that this is a sort of um, beginning of thinking for yourself with religion as part of the mix. I mean, I think that you can think for yourself and, and be committed to Jesus. I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. And I, and I think the mix, you know, can be heavily slanted towards your faith. And you can still be a perfectly sensible, liberal, decent person. Uh, so I don't think that don't, I think I think there's a kind of false um, kind of dichotomy there, really. But I mean that's that's that. But I, I do know that my two daughters, one became a Christian and one one isn't, and that's quite interesting to me. The one who isn't, yeah, she just lives such a wonderful life. She's um, she's she's permanently helping people. She's out there doing charity stuff. You know, I love the way that she is. I love them both. So I think that, you know, the, the church experience, one of them became a strong Christian, the other lives like one, even though she doesn't really believe in God. And um, I don't think God minds. I don't think God's going to judge one more harshly than the other. I think he loves them both. Thank you, Theo, Steve, Daniel and Nicholas. And finally, the author Elisa Seagrave says she was cancelled from a book club event after an email of hers apparently hurt some members. This inspired her analysis of the book club concept in this week's Spectator. She joins me now along with Simon Savage, the founder of Savage Reads, who's also had a bumpy ride when it comes to book clubs. Elise, can you start by telling us what exactly happened? Well, it wasn't my book club. I was only appearing as an author. But I never, so I don't know much about the book club, except they were very unfriendly. They cancelled me because I'd put an, uh, an email I'd written, which actually I hadn't put up myself, was put on the parish notice board of the village I'm in. Um, I had corrected a newsletter misreporting of a, of a parish meeting. It was a major misreporting of one woman, the chair of the council. And, and um, I didn't understand why the woman who'd invited me to talk at this book group suddenly seemed a bit weird with me in this outside the shop and things. I couldn't understand it. Eventually I texted her, I said, am I meant to come on September the what's it? And she sent this text, which I put, I won't read the whole thing. It's in my article saying village, blah, 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 your email, which was so factual, was hurtful, upsetting. We think it's best to postpone your visit. Gosh, what drama. <laughs> Simon, I think I'm right in saying that while you haven't been cancelled from a book club, you have actually chosen to quit one. Is, is that right? And, and if so, yeah. why? Why Take us through what happened. Well, I mean, it's ironic now because I'm one of the hosts on Sky Arts Book Club, so book clubs are very much part of my life, kind of, and my work. But I did, yeah, I did leave a book club because we were kind of in this situation where the some of the members, it was like, well, we can't read about this or we can't read about that. And for me, book clubs are the opposite of that. You should be trying to read as widely and as broadly as you like or as you can. And I just found that there were kind of these rules coming where one of our members wasn't a big fan of thrillers or anything that was crimey or gory and all the things that you can't guarantee before you've even started a book. 
So it just got to the point where it all felt like we were being a bit safe with all of our choices. Um, and whilst that can be brilliant for some book clubs, and that's what, you know, that's why the Rich and Judy book club is so successful, because people know they're going to enjoy the books that they read with that group. But for me, I wanted something a little bit different, I guess. And and what was the response when you quit? Were people broadly supportive? Or? I don't think they really noticed, to be honest, that, ma- that massively. I just sort of stopped going to the events. But interestingly, they're still going. They've been going for 11 years now, I think maybe even longer. And I have rejoined for a couple because I think also the group members have changed a little bit. <laughs> Elisa, you, you make the point in your piece that book clubs are often fraught places and with these sort of personality clashes. W- what sort of thing have you experienced in book clubs? I said in um, the article that two men, well, sometimes I've heard, I've heard this from other people, there's often fewer men than women. And the men sometimes seem to compete with each other. And this was these two men arguing about the spoils of Poynton and uh, the younger man had chosen it. And the older man said he didn't want to read about privileged people. And then at the very end of the meeting, he said he loved Proust. So it was clearly just a, a male kind of sparring thing. I don't, I haven't found too many women in the group I was in being competitive. But I don't, that could be a coincidence. I, like Simon, I left a book group, not in, in rancor or anything. I liked a lot of the members, but it was because one person could, had very strong opinions, which I... I just thought he was completely wrong about the book. He was very dismissive of some very good books with not very good reasons. Simon, on your blog, you set out a few rules for book clubs. Can, can you tell us about those rules and why you think they're necessary? Well, I've been really checking my rules, actually, because I was seen a video for um, the Scarters Book Club Facebook group about this. And I kind of said, like, well, what's been interesting is because we have, like, a different book club on every show... I've been asking them what their rules are. And what's been really surprising is the biggest contentious rule is, do you have to finish the book? (laughs) And a lot of them are like, yes, you have to. And a lot of the other ones are like, well, no, if you've got a constructive good reason why you didn't, that's as good. But I think for me, one of the things that really helps is if you do it on mutual territory. I think if you end up going like, because I used to be in another book club, it's like I've been a serial book club data. Um, <laughs> but I was at another book club where we'd all go around to each other's houses and almost kind of like when you're in someone's house and they're feeding you lovely snacks and stuff, you almost feel obligated to like their choice. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I think for me, it's always just about being really honest. It's about making sure everybody gets their chance to say and respond to the books and everyone feels heard. But also, like, if you can't finish it for whatever reason, it shouldn't be an arduous task to be in a book club. It should be fun. So if that means that, you know, you do DNF it, that's fine. I think as long as you've got some, you know, valid reasons why. And what about the rules for choosing a book? How how's that determined? I think what in terms of choosing a book, it's about letting everybody take their turn because you're going to get much more of a diverse... Like there are book groups I've heard of that I've not been in where only like one person is allowed to choose all of the choices. That to me doesn't seem very like demographic. It's quite demonstrative. But yeah, I think it's about everyone choosing. Or you could all put loads of different books in like a hat and pick out at random. Because I always used to love going to book club, talking about the book, but I was always really excited for what the next choice would be. Because it was like a mystery until that final moment or final glass of wine. Elisa, one of the people you mentioned in your piece is your friend Daniel, and he say, you say that he's seems to be almost in a sort of sadomasochistic relationship with his book club. Why why is he staying if he hates it so much? Or does he like it? Maybe he likes it. I think he enjoys the kind of cut and thrust of it. And following on Simon, he there's one woman who apparently never 
reads the book. She's still allowed to be in the club. And, and one of his friends who's not in that particular book club said, well, perhaps the woman can't read. She obviously likes the social life of the book club and they're far too lenient towards her. Simon, just, just finally to finish on, have you, have you made some kind of good friendships through book clubs? Because presumably that's ultimately what, what they're all about. I've made out of some of the book clubs I've been in, then those friendships will probably last longer than some of those book clubs. Thank you, Lisa and Simon. And that's everything this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pick up the latest issue of the magazine to read everything we've discussed. And if you become a subscriber today, you can get 12 issues of the magazine for £12 delivered to your door along with a £20 Amazon gift card. I'm Laura Prendergast. Thank you for listening and do join us again next week.